Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Series 2 of Not Another Sales Podcast. I'm Chris Hatfield, aka Not Another Sales Guy. I'm a sales and mindfulness coach, trainer, consultant, and speaker. I work with corporate sales teams and leaders, along with startup business owners passionate about what they do, but wanting to up their sales game. My main mission is helping us all become more mindful of how we elevate our performance, perspective, and potential. If you want to know more, then look me up on LinkedIn. Chris Hatfield, always happy to chat. So if you're new to Not Another Sales Podcast, here's what to expect. It's aimed at giving you insights into how you can be successful within the world of sales, whether that's your career or your own business. We go deeper into the thought process and mindset needed for success when selling and when running a business, not just the skills and output. So if you're looking for a podcast with a difference that starts with the mind in mind, this is for you. So enough about me, let's get started. On today's episode, I'm joined by Enrique and Laura Meniz de Aragal. Laura is Commercial Director at Nudge and Enrique is VP and General Manager of Amir at G2. They also host a Breakfast in Bed video series on LinkedIn that can be found by searching hashtag SAS Marriage. We're going to be talking around three key areas. The first one, dispelling the myth that top sales performers make poor sales leaders and why this isn't true. And in some scenarios, what organizations and individuals need to do to change this. They're also going to be sharing what they think are some unspecified traits that you won't find on the job spec of a modern SaaS sales leader. And also their top tips on sales talent hiring. So sit back and enjoy. Enrique and Laura, welcome. How are we doing? Really good. Thanks, Chris. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for joining me on an episode of Not Another Sales Podcast. Not a problem. Thanks for having us. So people might be wondering if if they can't see, of course, because this is audio, um, but people are seeing the video as to why you're together. So when you uh, give the audience a bit of an introduction for those that aren't familiar with you, it'd be great to maybe explain that as well. So Enrique, do you want to frame it? Yeah, sure. Well, the simple answer is that we're married. (laughs) (laughs) So um, we're both um, in uh, SaaS sales and uh, we found that, especially over the last four or five years, we were ending up at a lot of the same after-work networking events and building up a a mutual network and really have like, we kind of like fed off each other's network, I think, a lot um, over the last few years and really explored what we've been learning um, with each other. So I guess that's how this happened. Now we have hashtag SAS marriage. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Love it. And in terms of your background, what, if you could give us a bit of a story as to um, what makes you who you are. Yeah, of course. Um, I guess I'll go first. So yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Laura. Um, I'm the commercial director at Nudge. And Nudge is a SaaS fintech company who help global organizations support either their employees or their customers with financial well-being. Um, So at the moment, we're selling to enterprise organizations like Santander, Facebook, and my role is leading all of the revenue growth across sales, client success, and channel partnership teams. Um, But I guess in terms of my background, um, I've not had the most conventional route into sales leadership, uh, that's fair to say. Um, 12 years ago, I took my last bow as a professional dancer um, on the West End stage and then entered the world of um, sales, quite literally, I guess, plie to pitch. Um, but you know, my, my actual career in terms of sales, I went from SDR to VP of sales in the space of eight years, at a company called Thompson's Online Benefits, um, scaling the revenue through the sales leadership positions from 50 mil to 30 mil. Um, and I was really fortunate to see Thompson's through, I guess, multiple funding rounds through to when they exited to the you know, 16 billion uh, revenue consulting giant Mercer Marshall McClellan, uh, where we sold for 350 million USD. So that's where I guess I honed my sales skills, my sales leadership skills. Uh, but then it was ready to scratch the, uh, the startup scale up itch again, hence why I'm here at lunch. So that's a bit about me. Great. Thank you. And Enrique? Yeah. So I am originally from Brazil. I'm holding a um, Rio de Janeiro Starbucks mug uh, in this, you know, in the pre-COVID times, I used to do a lot of traveling with my job and collect Starbucks mugs from all sorts of places. Um, but I've worked in SaaS uh, for the last 13 years, mostly in sales. I uh, sold software services to begin with, 
uh, built sales teams at a startup, which uh, eventually led to 20 million in annual revenue uh, and an acquisition, uh, which landed me at Accenture as a senior manager. Uh, I then moved on to sell product uh, SaaS products um, and build sales teams at a company called Steelbrick, uh, which was acquired by Salesforce in 2016 for 380 million. And then I spent three years at Salesforce as a VP running European sales teams uh, and building a business from, um, we built a business from nothing to about 30 million in ARR in three years. And about a year ago, I joined G2, so G2.com, uh, to launch our EMEA business, uh, first person on the ground, hiring, building out our international go-to-market strategy, uh, also learning how to be a revenue leader rather than just a sales leader, and uh, learning a lot of lessons along the way. Great, great. I'm sure we'll hear about some of them as we go into this episode. I'm just going to say, Laura, that um, Plea to Pitch sounds like it could be a good book. Yeah, do you, do you know what? I did actually write <laughs> a little bit of a blog um about it and you know Enrique will tell me to be quiet now but I've got a real passion in general and we'll go into this perhaps later about you know uh, hiring sales talent but backing you know I think people from the arts make exceptional salespeople. I think you're going to introduce a uh, TikTok prospecting strategy with your team soon aren't you? Absolutely. <laughs> wow wow I'd love to hear about that later on. <laughs> Has there been any TikTok in between you both? Oh, so don't even get me started. <laughs> I, I try and get him to learn. It's the wrong podcast for that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I try and get him to learn the routines, but he's not a good student. Yeah, so. fair enough. Fair enough. Well, um, you know, again, thank you for, for joining me. And, and from what you've shared there, I'm sure you've got a ton of knowledge, some of which we've, we've spoken about previously. And one of the things to kick things off that, that we've been doing recently on the podcast is kind of addressing some of the, particularly in this climate, the way we're evolving, the way sales is evolving and how human beings and societies evolving i think there's a lot of things and statements and myths that have kind of been thrown out in the past that have either just been accepted or misunderstood and create some quite unconscious or conscious biases within the world of sales and when we were discussing this last week one came to a natural conclusion really that we should discuss in that often you'll look at salespeople's transition from selling to management and a lot of people's perception is that if you're a top salesperson, you make a poor sales leader because it's not a natural fit. So I'd love to get both of your insights and thoughts on that as to if that's complete rubbish and why, or like, is there some truth to it? And if so, like, what do people need to think about really? Because I think it's important, particularly if organizations want to promote within and develop people, that they actually set people up in the right way. So um, Laura, let's let's start with you. What are your what are your thoughts on that statement? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's certainly true. I guess that not all sales top performers will make great leaders, but in, in my experience, I'm yet to meet an exceptional sales leader that who wasn't a top sales performer as an individual contributor. And I think for me, one of the reasons that is a myth. Um, is that we tend to promote top performers, but without giving them the support structure to enable them to make this huge transition. Um, and so, you know, as someone myself, you know, hopefully I, I was a top performer as an individual contributor and I, I made this transition. I learned the hard way. Um, I guess I've given this a bit of thought in terms of three mistakes and therefore lessons that, you know, I certainly learned along the way. Um, and hopefully for listeners, you know, they won't suck like me when you first make this transition. Um, and I think just in general for me on this is that don't expect this to be a flip the switch. You know, you go to bed one night, a top salesperson, you don't wake up in the morning, an exceptional sales leader. It doesn't happen. It takes time to change that mindset and behavior. Um, so I think for me, three lessons that or mistakes and then lessons that I learned from, from my transition is first one, I was always too quick to rescue my reps. And you really have to learn to resist this temptation. You know, grabbing the reins from your rep as you know just signifies to both the prospect and the rep that they're not in control of that meeting. And it just sends such a clear message. And not only then will the prospect lose confidence in that person, but the poor rep will also lose confidence in themselves. So, and I think most importantly, by grabbing the reins, you've then lost the ability to coach them and train them on how to improve moving forwards. So don't grab those reins too quickly, as, as hard as it can be. 
I think the second thing that I learn is just not knowing when to give up. Um, I think to outperform your peers in sales, you obviously need tenacity. And most salespeople who you know, become sales leaders are highly determined and persistent. And that's brilliant, except when you apply that same never giving up spirit to trying to you know, coach below average reps. And you can then waste a lot of time you know, on underperformers because you just never want to give up on them. And you just have to sometimes know when enough is enough. So that'd be the second thing. And I think the third thing that was quite personal to me, actually, is that I felt that I had to prove my worth way too quickly. Um, I think as a newly promoted sales manager, particularly if you've been promoted within an organization, your, your peers suddenly transition to being your direct reports and you feel that pressure to assert authority you know, too early or, you know, you try and rectify all visible flaws at a million miles an hour. And then that poor team just see you as this aggressive, you know, constantly nitpicking manager. And you haven't yet reset the relationship. You know, you've gone from being peers to direct reports. Take that time to reset the relationship now with the new dynamic. Get to know them as a whole person. Get to know them in terms of their communication styles and build up that new trust that you're going to have to have in the new dynamic of the relationship. So, yeah, those are three mistakes I certainly made um, but have learned along the way. Mm. Yeah, you know, on the first one you mentioned there, I think it's really interesting, isn't it? Because it can come from a place of good intent when you're trying to protect your reps. You've been through it. You've experienced it. But sometimes you need to let people kind of just have those falls or have that experience because you can talk about it all day long, what it feels like to not hit quota or to have this deal drop out when you think it's going to go through. But until it actually happens, someone can't really understand it. And it, you know, I use the analogy sometimes a bit like riding a bike. You know, you can constantly just stand next to someone and hold them up. They'll still be riding, but they're not going to learn because as soon as you walk away, they're just going to fall over. And you know, you might have a good intent for what you're doing, but, you know, if you want to see your, your team develop and your organization develop, you need to be allowed to, to give those people that space, but also let them know you're there to support them for when they do have those experiences as well. Yeah. And I think for the easier you know, ease of maths here, you know, if suddenly you're on average, people run 10 deals a year and that was my world in the enterprise world and you've got 10 reps, what you end up doing is you end up running 100 deals. And that's yeah. Lose your sanity. So yeah, you have you have to learn to let them make mistakes and then coach them and train them along the way. Yeah, absolutely. And um, what about your point of view, Enrique? Um, <laughs> it's funny. I was thinking about this. I was going to say, Laura, I agree. Um, you're not going to see me disagreeing with my wife um, much. I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> look, I, I do agree with Laura. I think that um, it is definitely a myth. But also because we simply always promote top performers. The, the sales managers that don't work out, you know, it's very easy to say that every one of those don't work out and they're all, uh, you know, they're all top performers, right? Uh, because we promote all the top performers. Uh, but I think that um, when I think about, you know, this myth, um, I do think it's a myth, by the way. I don't agree with the statement. Uh, what we can't ignore is that like, the, the fundamental characteristics of a top salesperson are very different, right? They need to be selfish with their time. They need to have obsessive control of their calendar, and, you know, sometimes they have to say no to being a team player. Um, and a sales manager, on the other hand, you know, their success is driven by their ability to put the needs of others before their own. Um, and so that's why I think it's such a hard transition. Um, and it's also one of the reasons why uh, the, the whole player coach thing, so a sales manager that also owns an individual number, is usually a really bad idea. Um, it's usually a bad idea when it's done in the interest of the company. We go, oh, we don't really want to lose Laura because she's such a high performer, you know, and just get rid of her quota. So let's keep some of her quota with her and also get her to teach all the other people how to do it as good as she does, right? Uh, I think that's a really bad idea. But when done as part of someone's transition, I actually think it can really help because it will, it will help um, uh, materialize that contrast between those two um, types of um, ways of working and ultimately you can't do both roles well and you can't be a selfish individual producer as well as an accessible manager at the same time but I think as part of a transition it really does help give that support and help the individual figure that out um, but I don't know if you're familiar with um, a management principle called the Peter principle Chris 
I've heard um, of it, yes. Yeah. So it basically states that we promote people to the level of incompetence, right? Um, and it reflects this, this very common um, uh, governance flaw that we have in companies, which is to just promote people that are doing a good job, who have nailed their current job, into the next role, right? When the next role actually requires a whole set of skills mm. that the previous role never required. So we're promoting them to incompetence. Um, and, um, and I think that I, I do think that that principle itself also falls short because of a few very important things. Um, so for example, um, I do think that a great sales manager must have been a great individual contributor, right? They must know what it's like to do 300% of target. They have to have had a year when they made two or three times what their manager made, right? And a manager needs to be able to relate to that. They need to be okay with it. They need to encourage that. Right. Um, and I also think that principle, you know, the preset principle probably also um, fails to sort of um, uh, fails to also realize the fact that you know, the best sales managers were top individual performance. Right. But they developed leadership skills, management acumen before they became managers. Right. When it was not part of their day job. Right? Not only did they go the extra mile and work harder than everyone and deliver great deals, you know, they, they went onto the other lanes, you know, they, they stopped down for the broken down vehicles down the road. They took a pit stop to wait for others, right? They celebrated other people's success when they, when theirs fell short. And I think that um, in, in terms of leadership and management, nobody needs to wait for a job title to lead. Um, and, you know, I believe that in business, you know, to lead is to serve others uh, rather than actually tell others what to do. So I think if you want to look for top performers who, um, are you know going to be great managers? Just look at people who are hell bent on ensuring that everyone wins, you know, um, not just themselves, but their colleagues, their clients, they work with, their customers, um, and that's the best. Of, you know, that, that, those are my thoughts on why I don't believe in the statement uh, that I see, top ICs make poor managers. Yeah, yeah, and uh, going back to to both your points, I think there's some real ownership that needs to be placed on businesses here and organisations, as you said, to not just users for our way common but it's your responsibility to create that culture you mentioned it earlier Laura as well where you know sometimes businesses are fearful of of losing that person because they're such a top performer that they're, they're going to not fill that void whereas what you should be doing in that process is giving people the tools to kind of support and lead people around them even before they move into a management role to, as you said, to, to avoid that incompetence, to give them that kind of belief because you'll also tell if someone is going to be a great manager while they're doing that at the same time. So whether it is like some informal team lead roles or giving them some responsibilities or sharing it around the team and giving them that kind of experience because sometimes at the same time, a lot of people I think in, in the world of sales go into management because they think that's what's expected of them. And they think, oh, well, you know, this is just the natural route, but do they really want that? And I think if you're able to give someone those kind of responsibilities and experience before they get there, not only can you say, actually, do you know what, they're maybe they're not right fit, they can also come to that conclusion and go, do you know what, I don't want to become a manager. You know, I want to just stay in this role. I, I thought I did, but I don't. And that can save a lot of time, resource, and also, you know, in, keep those relationships intact as well. Yeah, 100%. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I resisted the temptation to go into management for a long, long time, didn't I? And I was just like, I wasn't, it wasn't in me. You know, I was really happy smashing quota, making a lot of commission, um, you know, me, myself and I for many, many years. But then, you know, gradually my mindset changed and I was ready. Um, and luckily I had a support system that enabled me to get ready of when I knew that it was the right time for me. So, yeah, I guess if you are an individual contributor, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go into management. Yeah. What would you say to, to people listening to this, whether they're sales leaders already or salespeople that they can do to maybe gain that exposure or proactively do something to, to get those kind of responsibilities to get an idea if management is for them, but also for the organization to get an idea if management's the right fit as well. And I can talk to that a bit. Um, so in my last, I'd say, four or five years um, in businesses and teams that I've been involved in, I have adopted a uh, approach of painting a very clear vision. Um, so I, we actually, I started doing this at Salesforce. So we have this... Um, um, objectives and key results model that um, Mark Benioff, the uh, CEO founder of Salesforce, introduced, which is called the V2MOM, and it's, it stands for v two Vs, so vision, values, 
and then methods, obstacles, and metrics. Anyway, um, it's a type of OKR. Um, but the key thing about it is uh, that every team in the company, all the way down, all the way from CEO down to individual contributor, has a V2 mom and has that vision, right? So with my teams, I've set a V2 mom every year, uh, which clearly outlines what is our vision um, for the year, and we review that on a quarterly basis. So when I look at individual contributors or managers in my teams, I look for people that understand the team V2 mom, the team vision, the company vision, and they go, okay, my job description is to hit my quota, right, and deliver revenue for the, t- for the business. But the team goals includes all these other things, right? Cross-functional initiatives with marketing, with product, um, campaigns with customers, initiatives with customer success, um, building out assets that will help our teams become better enabled and sell more value. Um, what can I do outside of my uh, job description to help the team and the business uh, and to lead others uh, towards those goals? I think that's what I really look for. And that's what I encourage both managers and leaders to sort of paint that vision, make sure the team understands why it matters and what it means for us as a team and for them as individuals. But then for the individuals as well, uh, to really lean in on understanding that and what kind of bigger role can they play in contributing towards it. And I think that the ones that put themselves forward, uh, and sometimes you need a little bit of encouragement, right? So again, it's your job as a leader to also push people in the right direction, really understand what they want to do. Uh, but the ones that do that are the ones that really shine through and really demonstrate leadership potential. And then when it happens, it's almost like a fait accompli, right? Because they've already been leading. Mm. What about you, Laura? Anything to add on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would just say, you know, a simple one is, is dip your toe in the water on, you know, mentoring. Um, now, mm-hmm. of course, mentoring is very different to being a manager and a leader. Um, I'm not trying to you know, compare the two. But I think if, if you've been an individual contributor, you know, your entire life so far, you know, actually, do you have that will and desire to mentor and coach someone else to success? And if you find yourself really being fulfilled by that, then I think that's then the natural progression to going, okay, do you know what? I am ready to try and transfer my skills and, and coach others. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and mentoring's an interesting one, isn't it? Cause I think, you know, we're coaching is, is becoming a, a bigger thing, but I think mentoring is something that still is probably underutilized and um, under supported within within the world of sales in general, really, because I think a lot of people perceive that, oh, they just want to, they look out for themselves, all salespeople are selfish, and you have to have that certain tenacity, but I think there's a lot of people that do want to provide that support, and that's, yeah, just giving someone that responsibility can give you a clear indication, as you say, for, yes, they would like to go into management, or maybe they would, but they need some development skills around it. So some of the things that, that we've we've spoken about already, some of the traits you mentioned there, uh, are obviously important, and I suppose what I'd love to understand from from you both now is when you are looking, you know, at bringing people into your organisation. What are some of the unspecified traits that you wouldn't necessarily, you know, write down on a typical job spec, um, or what you're looking for of a of a modern SaaS person or leader uh, when you're looking to bring them in to the business? Yeah, I mean, I'll talk to this from like a, a sales leadership perspective. So when we're looking for you know, a sales manager in our organization, I think, you know, I think firstly, we can all probably remember those sales leaders that we hugely admired and we thrived under. And then we've all got the, the stark contrasts to that, right? We all know what was great and what wasn't so yeah. great. Yeah, it's likely the job spec, as you said, Chris, was probably exactly the same. So I think there are a lot of unspecified traits now that make a really sort of modern SaaS sales leader. And yeah, we're talking in SaaS here, but yeah, it could be a sales leader in in non-SaaS as well. I think, you know, one of the key things for me is is you're a brand ambassador. As a sales leader, you know, you need to take into account there has never been more companies fighting for the attention of your prospects than there is today. And relying on what, you know, salespeople and business did 20 years ago is not going to cut it. So unless probably you work for, you know, a well-established corporate where you can rely just on selling on its brand identity alone. 
So for me, the modern SaaS sales leader that isn't on the job spec is you're a brand ambassador and you are finding opportunities to share your voice, but most importantly, your people's voice. Uh, your sales team's voices. You are putting them forward to speaking at events. You're sharing on social channels like you know, like we're doing today. And what that is also doing, I think, is it's promoting your sales culture within your organisation. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in, in my world, we sell into the HR space, and it's it's really interesting that organisations that buy from us will absolutely look at our glass door. You know, it's so open and transparent these days around the culture of the business, and people are buying way more on on that than necessarily the products and services that you offer. So it's really important as a sales leader to be that brand ambassador, but also that culture ambassador to show that, you know, it's a great fun place to work, that we really thrive on, you know, the success of our customers because prospects take note of that and that will build team morale, but also prospect loyalty. So I think that would be, you know, one thing for me would be a brand ambassador. Mm. Nice, nice. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely agree with that. I think a lot of people probably are starting to wake up to it, but I think people could do a lot more with you know how much it can gather. And I think also it's inspiring for those that that you that report into you as well that they they see that and that they can aspire to to want to do that as well. And I think you know as you say it it adds because you are exposing yourself a lot more. There's a lot more transparency, which means that you do have to ensure that you know what you're talking about is actually what you're doing. You know. It's, Quite often within this world of social media, a lot of people are saying one thing and doing another. But when you're working with a team, you've got to be very aligned. If you're going to go out and talk about this kind of thing and be a brand ambassador for the business and go on podcasts and videos is to go, am I doing everything that I am talking about or is it just a nice to have and I think I'm doing it? Because I'll get exposed very quickly if I don't. Do you know what? I th- I couldn't agree more with that particular point. I think there's so much sometimes a disconnect between what people are saying on you know podcasts like this to actually then their behaviours internally. And um, you know, I'll, I'll give you a, a, you know a, a stark contrast to that and something that I was really proud of. So one of my team, um, she's called Lucy Carter. Um, I put her forward to speak at an event. It was the first time she'd ever spoken at an event. And, you know, she needed to think about what she was going to be speaking about. And she wanted to talk about um, the challenges that she's had with her mental health and how that then has an impact on sales performance. So we're really sort of, you know, opening up, you know, yourself, exposing yourself topic. You know, I was so proud. She was so brave to go on stage and, and talk so openly about that. But then internally, she is our mental health first aider. So she champions that internally. And there was that absolute correlation between her passion and how she you know, is internally within our business to what she shared on that on that stage. So I think being your true, authentic self, both in you know, these environments, but also internally, you have, you have to do that. Mm, absolutely. And from your point of view, Enrique? Yeah, I mean, I've certainly experienced that whole transition um, of going from a globally really well-known company that you could just literally pick up the phone and say, hey, I'm from company XYZ, let's talk, uh, to uh, a company that most people had never heard of, at least in Europe, um, and really embraced the whole brand ambassador piece. Uh, I really enjoyed as well putting our teams forward for speaking engagements, but I think uh, there's one thing that we really vibed off, um, Laura and I, and we're talking about you know, how we build our teams. Um, and um, very recently at G2, we've built out our leadership team as well. And um, we've got two amazing leaders now, uh, Molly and Francis, heading up our business development, uh, customer success, and a new business acquisition team. And talking about this, Laura and I, we're saying, you know what, one of the things that we look for in people that you'd never write down in a job spec is... How much do they really care about their team outside of work, right? And um, how much do they really care about um, getting to know them? How much do they really care about becoming better humans themselves, right? Because we believe that, and I think I'm speaking for both of us, that better humans make better leaders. Um, And it's very hard for you to move from a position of uh, a a need to be right in how you engage with people to a position of you know wanting to learn and wanting to learn about them, wanting to learn about the whole person. What kind of efforts do you drive to make people feel like they belong, to make them feel safe? Um, and I think that that's one of the most underrated um, 
drivers, I wouldn't even say quality, drivers, intrinsic drivers uh, of intent from a leadership perspective that yields the highest performing sales teams. And at least in my experience, having had people in my team who have gone through things like addiction, uh, bereavement, uh, long-term sick, you know, and your ability to rally the company as a leader, rally the company, normally it's not up to you, around the need to support those individuals, right? Give them paid time off, you know, picking up, you know, their work or redistributing their work um, so that they can come back feeling safe, feeling loved by the company. Um, like the results that this drives is just, it's just unbelievable. And the feeling that you get in terms of what you build with those teams is just indescribable. So I think that's one of the things that I, I rate the highest in terms of leadership. Mm. Yeah, I, I love that. I think both to your points, particularly that one there was, if you are doing that, because I think so many people, I, I think previously people would underestimate how important culture was and the environment around people. And particularly if you're bringing in those types of sales leaders, then they're going to, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this shortly, but they're going to hire certain types of people. If you get the wrong kind of people who maybe aren't, you know, haven't got the right kind of ethics or morals or create that bad atmosphere, they're probably going to filter through towards the salespeople who are there already, but also people you bring in as well are probably going to be of that same kind of ilk, which means that you're kind of like, it's like a tree. You're kind of just rotting the roots from the bottom, really. That's going to eventually, you might not see it straight away, but it's going to wilt and it's going to die if you don't, if you don't fix that. So, you know, I, I completely agree on that. And a couple of things you mentioned there, you know, about brand ambassadorship and finding good people. And it was started making me think, you know, how do you actually, how do you find that? How do you interview for that? So I could kind of park that question for now, but I suppose the first piece is around that, around that hiring piece. What kind of tips or advice would you have for, for hiring top salespeople or for hiring people in general to find that those kind of qualities and fit? Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, my, my one, and it again comes back to sort of a passion of mine, is mindset over merit, dedication over degrees. And I think given my background of coming from the arts as a dancer and not having a conventional degree, I have a real passion and belief of challenging the status quo on hiring, you know, I'll talk about sort of graduate hiring of sales talent. I think it's ridiculous in this day and age if companies are still mandating that as a graduate SDR coming in, you need a 2-1 degree from XYZ University. It was In certain professions, I get it. You know, you need to you know, assess a candidate's education. But I don't believe that's true in sales. You know, there is no such thing that we've done a sales degree. So I think that's really important for me. Um, now, I do you know, have to balance that with I have an unconscious bias for always backing the person that on paper shouldn't succeed. Um, so I need to be cognizant of that in my hiring. Um, so I've learned over the years um, to follow Mark Reberge's principles laid out in his book, The Sales Acceleration Formula. That really transformed my approach to a winning you know, hiring formula, essentially. So what I do at Nudge is I will track and almost capture what makes our salespeople successful here. And I'll correlate that to the characteristics of those that I'm interviewing in a formula, you know, in a formula, uh, in a scientific formula based way. And that helps me, I guess, scientifically predict whether that person would be a good fit for Nudge. So it just balances my unconscious bias of always backing the underdog. So mm. I think that would be mine. But yeah, mindset over merit, dedication over degrees. Great. Yeah, I think I've got a two on degree and I don't think anyone's ever actually asked me to show it to them. <laughs> I don't even know where it is. Um, you know, you put it on your CV, but when does someone actually go, yeah, let's have a look at it? Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> and I think the other thing I, I'd sort of add to that, Chris, is is to the point that we were talking about earlier about, you know, understanding and, and treating someone as the whole human being outside of the, you know, the nine to five. One thing I'll look for for that when, you know, interviewing even, you know, an SDR right the way through to a, a sales leader is I'll tune into their, their body language and their tone of voice. You know, we've all heard the statistics around it's not what you say, it's, it's how you say it. And I think, you know, that comes into that point about being a genuine, authentic leader that wants to get to know people beyond the nine to five. And I think it's such a critical aspect still of sales, you know, that human aspect of selling. So strong nonverbal communication skills are critical for me that I would look for in an interview process. Um, so I'll be looking for open body language. Are they mirroring my body language? Um, you know, is their tone of 
voice, their pace mirroring me so that I'm feeling more comfortable. Um, and also just you know, a really simple one that I think is underrated um, in life in general, actually, is the warmth of a smile. You know, <laughs> so I think, you know, in this in this virtual selling world, I remember someone told me when I ran my first marathon, Laura, when it gets painful, smile, it will make you feel better. Mm-hmm. And it genuinely does. And I think, you know, to, to quote, you know, I can't believe I'm about to quote the Dalai Lama on a sales podcast, but, you know, a simple smile, you know, that's the start of opening your heart and being compassionate to others. So when you go on that Zoom call or when you're in an interview scenario for back in the face to face world, it is that just signal of warmth and openness. So just smile. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely on board with the smiling. I think, you know, you can trick your brain into that. It comes from your, your primal brain, which doesn't know the difference between what's happened, happening or going to happen. So you can kind of trick yourself into a false sense of positivity and then it can become positivity as well. Um, on your point as well around verbal communication and nonverbal, sorry, and speaking to someone outside of it, one of the things that I like to do and have done in the past is, is get someone to talk about a passion of theirs. So give, you've got two minutes, uh, maybe we'll cut the room, you've got two minutes, just talk me through what are you passionate about in your life? So it could be a hobby, it could be something, it's a great way to get to know someone, but also how well are they able to articulate their passion? Because if someone can't even articulate well what they're passionate about, are they really going to be able to do that with what you're selling, with what your product is? So Getting someone, giving someone that kind of stage not only gives you an insight into them, it also helps you understand, okay, if they were, it's not the you know, be all and end all, but it's a good idea as to how well someone can articulate. Imagine I know nothing about this. Talk to me about your passion. Explain to me what it is and, wh- and why, why it's your passion. Yeah, yeah, that really resonates with me. Um, I think one of the hardest things is to find people that can align their life passions to their job. And unfortunately, we can't all do that, right? Mm. Uh, But one thing that I always look for is evidence of how is somebody cultivating a desire to nurture a passion or to grow as an individual, right? Um, You know, whether it's taking courses, reading books, podcasts, whether it's, you know, just having a habit of taking people out to lunch or attending podcasts like these. You know, I think that, you know, if we're looking for people that have leadership potential, whether a manager or not, right? Because as I said, you don't need to be a manager to lead. Um, you want to look for people that are always learning, right? People that don't act as if they know it all, but they're, they're learning, right? Or I think I heard somewhere someone saying, you want to you want to learn it all, not a know it all. Um, and so if you want to change the trajectory of your career, um, you know, there are massive opportunities out there. So I look for evidence of that. Uh, and also in terms of the skills, I really like Mark Roberge's, um engineer approach to sort of what are the best skills or attributes, right? And then how do we make sure everyone can be assessed against that? At the same time, I've really relaxed my thinking on that um, because what I've seen is if you, if you pick, I don't know, four or five great salespeople that you've either worked with, worked for, um, and, um, and you try and distill why were they successful, Right. I think, unfortunately, what you find, what I found, is that um, each one of those will have a super skill or a superpower that is different from the other, right? So somebody who's great at closing might not be so great at uh, doing really value-driven discoveries, right? But the one that does is probably successful because of that, not because they're great at closing. So when and, and there's um there's another there's another book I really like which is uh, Hard Things by Hard Things um, by Ben Horowitz. It's actually a great sort of manual for like um, CEOs and aspiring CEOs or business leaders. Anyway, one thing he says is um, don't hire for lack of uh, weaknesses, right? Sorry, don't hack, don't hire for lack of strengths uh, or for weaknesses. Actually, hire for what that person is really good at, right? So when you take somebody to a committee you might get loads of people giving you reasons not to hire that person, right? But what is the one thing that they're really good at? What is their superpower? And could that superpower make them really good at their job? So that's one tip that I would give to people. I really try to internalize that uh, and not just follow like a cookie cutter approach to hiring where you know, there might be a, um, a role play. And did they do the intro well? Did they do the pitch well? Did they demo well, right? But actually try and find that superpower. I think it's one tip I would give to people. Mm. It's a good question to ask because I think sometimes 
it gives you an idea of how aware they are of their own strengths. If someone struggles or thinks that, you know, I think there's a culture sometimes thinking they have to be great at everything, which isn't possible. You're going to have things that you're better at than others. But asking that question can give you a good idea as to how well they know themselves. Because I think, you know, if, if a sell, I've talked about this in a couple of episodes already, but if a, if a salesperson, the more they understand about their process and the more they understand about how they succeed, the more they can do it over and over again. And there's a great example of this, the New Zealand All Blacks rugby team. Uh, highest percentage of any sports team of all time of win percentage and typically what sports teams do will when they lose they'll come in early the next day and analyze it and when they win they'll go out and celebrate but the all blacks do it the other way around so when they win they'll come in early the next day and when they lose they'll go out and yeah. why they do that is because they want to analyze their success they believe they can consistently do something it's easier to to repeat something you're doing then change something or not and it's not saying you shouldn't focus on your weaknesses but it's saying that if you've had a for example you've you've lost a deal and you were going to have a meeting the next day about an hour and a half of everyone sitting down going what happened why didn't it work even if you won that deal still have that meeting and still invest the same amount of time and effort into it but sit down and go what did we do don't pass it sometimes it's easy isn't it within sales it's like we pass the buck when we lose but when we win we're kind of like we, we put it down to they liked me or, you know, this happened, that happened. But what was the controllables in that? What did you do? Because the more you can understand that as a business and as a person, the more you can repeat that and know what you can control and what you can't. Yeah, I love that. And uh, in fact, when you think about like um, deal reviews, let's say you win a, a deal or you lose a deal, or you have a great quarter or you have a crap quarter, right? If you take the approach of, let's say you had a crap quarter of, not trying to answer the question, why did we suck? But actually um, trying to answer the question of what should we do different, right? So that this doesn't happen again. What did we learn, right? So what, what should we do different? And then when you win, when you have a great quarter, uh, instead of just celebrating, asking yourself, okay, why did we win, <laughs> right? Um, well, I, th- I, think, I think most importantly, don't ask yourself, ask the client. Yeah. And I think... You know, we're, we're not, you know, I've made sure forever that we do close loss reviews with the client, but we also do close win reviews with the client. Um, so, you know, we can, we can all have this perception of why we won internally, but most importantly, ask the client, yeah. you know, how mm. they found the experience. In fact, I had a great um, um, person in, in our team, uh, Thomas in France. He actually introduced this amazing idea that I've taken forward ever since. Uh, so he sold a great deal in France. He actually brought the, 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 our key buyer, who was a CFO, into our team QBR uh, to present why he bought from us. <laughs> and it's the first time I've ever had a customer in my team meeting telling us why they bought from us. It's such a fantastic idea and it's just something that I think a lot of teams should do. Mm. Yeah, and going back to your point as well before we go around, finding a superpower, I think the more you can promote that within your business, it makes people feel comfortable that you don't have to be great everything but if you're aware of what you are and what you're not you can then seek development or support on that rather than just thinking um, you know if you if you're a natural closer if you're great asking questions because you're naturally empathetic or curious don't focus too much on that that will come naturally focus more on the other areas at the back end of learning from people around you your peers your manager your coach of okay how do i develop this piece rather than just looking at it overall each time and i think to add to that chris as a leader make sure that you know you're also being very transparent about what your superpower is and, and, and where your weaknesses are because that will then help people feel that they can be more vulnerable and go, I'm not great at everything, but also it helps you manage expectations up with you know founders, CEOs, you go, right, this is my superpower. So in my instance, I know I, I you know I'm my superpower is building great cultural sales teams and getting everyone you know in a winning direction. Um, so culture um, is my superpower in building sales teams. My weakness, absolutely, is having a really data-driven sales approach. That's where I rely heavily on you know, having revenue ops people help me out there. It's not my go-to skill set. Um, as Enrique will know, my Excel skills are somewhat uh, to be admired. Uh, so, yeah, and just being, being open about that. And then you're managing expectations from the get-go. Yeah, yeah, I've worked with a couple of organizations where they've 
created a coat of arms each leader has in terms of like a, a, like a bit like you know like a shield where you have back in the day where you'd have like the four things that represent the uh-huh. the castle or the county and they they have created and put four things like four things that they believe like their superpowers and they put it on the front of their door or next to their wall to to display to everyone to say and also ask himself and own take accountability to say am i doing this or are all my actions aligned to this and for the team to see it as well that's great. I like that. I'll steal that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's so important. It's so important. One of the things actually, a side question that came up just from this conversation, you mentioned Laura about the, the mental health aspects mm-hmm. earlier of having that individual go and talk. And, you know, it's something that's becoming bigger and bigger quite rightly with more exposure now within not just the world of sales, but in general life. And um, what, what advice would you give to sales leaders from, from what you've done or what you've seen that's worked to to create that culture where people do feel, as you mentioned as well earlier, Enrique, like safe, that kind of environment to have take time off when they need to, but not feel like, oh my God, when I get back, I've got so much to do. Everyone's going to be sitting there judging me. Um, what, what's your, what are your thoughts on that? So, I mean, one of the things, you know, I, I can't coin this, this is my own idea. I actually stole it from Enrique, who I think you, you did it at Salesforce. So we'll credit Salesforce. I'm sure Salesforce found it somewhere else that I did with my team, which was transformational. You know, building a new team as well is really important because that culture isn't there yet. So one of the things that we did to create that, I guess, you know, open environment for people to be their true authentic selves is we went away for a day um, as a team as a newly formed team and we presented on basically who we were and what was our goals and ambitions in, in the four quadrants so what were my you know financial aspirational goals and that's things like you know people would saying things like you know I want to earn enough money here so that I can then have a second child and, and bring them up you know in a comfortable way I want to you know buy my first house whatever it might be so what are those financial goals that you've got what are your um what are your health goals that you've got you know in terms of you know your health your physical well being um, then there was another bucket of what your legacy goals and this one was really interesting uh, where it exposed quite a lot what, what do you want to be known as you know fast forward 10 years what do you want people to remember about you and that doesn't need to be about your career and I have one guy that just said I just want to be known that in, you know, in 10 years time my kids say I was an amazing dad and I balanced work and home life appropriately and then of course what are your career aspirations and you know, some of the st- people were exposed, people were exposing themselves and we were learning so much about each other outside of the work environment. So, uh, you know, I was very open to my team and said, you know, Enrique and I, both in our early 30s, I want to have a baby and, you know, I, I want to start a family. And that's quite a tough thing to expose yourself to as a newly formed manager, you know, startup, founders are listening to this as well because the founders also came to this and it was okay. And so, you know, if people have kids and they're having to go home because the kid's sick or whatever, we know that because we know that person has that family life and one of their clear ambitions is they want to be a good dad. Um, so that for me, and I've got a really great template again that we sort of you know, took from Salesforce. That's a, it was an amazing exercise and we became so close as a team because we knew each other beyond our work and that really helped. Mm. Anything to add, Enrique? Um, not much, um, apart from the fact that, um, you know, I think as a leader, you've got to remember that you cast a really long shadow. And a lot of the times the sun is in front of you, blinding your view. Um, and you don't realize the really long shadow that you're casting behind you. Right. So if you tell people not to work after hours, yeah. then don't work after hours yourself. If you tell people not to answer emails on the holiday, don't answer emails on the holiday, right? And I'm sure we've all heard this before, but I would probably bet that 80% of people that say this don't do it. Um, and what that does, most importantly, is it erodes trust, right? And I think one of the biggest drivers of feeling like you belong, feeling you know, part of something, feeling safe to be able to be yourself is feeling trusted. Right. So if you as a leader, you're not depositing trust onto others, 
because somebody's got to start, and I promise you, most of the times it's not going to be a direct report, right? If you're not making that, if you're not taking that first step and depositing that trust on people, whether it's you know, trusting them to get the job done or to find time in their own time that fits their lifestyle to deliver something, right, to a customer or to the team, then you're not going to be in a position to build on those values. Um, so I would just say that. And I remember the, the shadow that mm. you cast and, and really focus on building trust with people and, and be willing to take that first step um, to take a chance on people. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, trust is a big thing at the moment with everyone working from home that, you know, people, and it might continue that people are going to have to adopt. And, you know, there's probably been a lot of lessons learned within organizations at the moment of what kind of trust you have with your team and what kind of proximity you have with them, whether you're there to support them or whether you're there to observe them. So, yes. yeah. Yeah. Well, Laura and Enrique, it's been great. Thank you so much for, for your time today. It's been really interesting hearing your stories and, and your insights as well. No, it's been wonderful. Thanks for having us, Chris. Chris, You're really welcome. enjoyed this. I've loved getting to know you as well. And I'm I'm a new fanboy of the Not Another Sales Guy podcast. So um, thank <laughs> Great. you for coming into our lives. You're welcome. And for people that uh, might be the first time listening to you and maybe just want to see what else is going on in your world, some of the things you share, of course, and they've got your own thing as well going on, maybe um, share with them where they can find you and, and then what that's all about as well. You want to see a really crappy uh, version of um, <laughs> random salespeople interviewing other people? Then you can you can search for hashtag SaaS Marriage um, on LinkedIn. I think we will be launching a YouTube channel yeah, soon. Right? Yeah. So we've got our hashtag SaaS Marriage. We do breakfast in beds, which are ten minutes. We're normally doing the interviewing, uh, so this is quite strange for us being interviewed so yeah they're 10 minute videos where we get experts and we'd love to have you on chris as well so you can come and do a breakfast in bed um with us so yeah follow hashtag sas marriage or just connect with either of us on linkedin annoyingly uh we have a really complicated surname thanks to my husband here so yeah <laughs> or, or enrique moniz de aragal Perfect. Great. Well, thank you both again. And for the listeners, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Not Another Sales Podcast. Hey, people. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Not Another Sales Podcast. If you want to find out more and connect with me, you can find me on LinkedIn under Chris Hatfield, H-A-T-F-I-E-L-D, or on my website, www.notanothersalesguy.com. That's www.notanothersalesguy.com. Stay tuned in future for some courses and free content on there as well. But for now, have a good one and I'll catch you soon.